From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. As part of our exploration of corporate purpose and resilience through the COVID-19 crisis, senior partner Celia Huber recently held a discussion with Reckett Benkeiser CEO, Laxman Narasimhan. Reckett Benkeiser is a UK-based global consumer products company with more than 40,000 employees. The majority of its products are in health, hygiene, and home categories, including such well-known brands as Lysol and Clearasil. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Here's Celia. Laxman, welcome. I've known you, gosh, almost a quarter of a century now. And just to introduce you to our listeners, prior to your current role, Lakshman held several various senior roles at Pepsi, including Global Chief Commercial Officer, CFO of PepsiCo America's Foods, and the CEO of Latin America. Um, before joining PepsiCo, he was a senior partner at McKinsey. Lakshman, I'd like to start off by talking a bit about corporate purpose. Can you tell us about Redkit Benkeiser's purpose and how you arrived at it? Sure. Thank you, Celia. I became CEO first of September last year, and there was a lot of buzz about the company, a lot of questions about its future, and I decided that I would take six months to, in effect, lay out what I thought the company should be and where we should go. And so as part of that, I actually spent a lot of time in markets. I sold with our salespeople. I was out meeting customers, and also importantly, immersed myself in our R&D labs. And I remember sitting in our R&D lab in Montreal, New Jersey, which is our big microbiology center, looking at the map of the world. And what you realize is there are more bugs. They're getting bigger, they're getting stronger, and they're getting more global. And at that point in time, it became very clear to me what we did was really we were in the business of protecting, healing, and nurturing our consumers. We thought, why do we exist as a company? And that's really what our purpose was about. And we articulated it as, we exist to protect, heal, and nurture in the relentless pursuit of a cleaner and healthier world. We did actually articulate that in October. We tested it with customers, and there were several of our employees, and some of our younger people came back and said, that's great, we love this purpose, we're extremely energized by it. But we also want to put on the table a fight. And they really articulated what we should stand for. It's a fight, a fight for access, a fight for access for high-quality products, for information that drives behavior change, and for availability. So we articulated this fight, and at the end of February, we announced to the world that this was our purpose and this was our fight, and actually brought a lot of clarity to the strategy of the company and uh, where we would go. So this was right around the time when COVID-19 was starting to make the news around the world? January 15th, I remember getting a call from Wuhan, China. We have a factory 200 kilometers outside of Wuhan, China. It is the, one of the largest debt hall factories, one of the U.S. you would say, Lysol. And we literally went into hyperdrive around that point in time. And what became clear to us at the end of February when we announced this was there was something happening clearly bigger than all of us. But we realized that this was actually a very important time for the company to embrace it. And so articulating the purpose, articulating this fight, energized the company to really stand up and be counted in a time that is very difficult. 
You created a series of social media interviews for the Dettol Hand Wash Challenge uh, to spread awareness of hand washing in India as a way to combat the coronavirus. Uh, in aggregate, I understand these videos have been viewed over 120 billion times. How did this idea come about? This TikTok video came to me as a proposal. In all fairness, we thought we would get one billion views. That's what we thought. The song is a bit of an earworm. But what is remarkable about it is that if you take a look, compare the viewership we got, it's much larger than what a lot of public health institutions were able to accomplish with their videos. So we really brought in the consumer insight, our knowledge of behavior change, the way we see it as brand marketers, and we brought it into the world of public health. Lakshman, that's great. And so as you think about how your purpose has evolved and the fight has evolved even during the COVID efforts, is there anything that you guys would have done in addition to the public awareness? Uh, how has your purpose guided your approach to the COVID-19 crisis? You know, our purpose, in fact, has, has actually been further solidified. And you can see it in the factory floors in Belmead, New Jersey, the people who make Lysol, who feel really proud that's what they're doing. You see it in the various factories in India. You see it in the salespeople in China. And they all feel really energized by it. So there's no need for us to change the purpose. But one of the things the board and I talked a lot about was how do we ensure that we actually make a real difference? And so we have set aside 1% of our operating profit, and we're basically giving it away. And we gave it to the front line in Wuhan, to the CDC, to HIV AIDS patients in Africa, the NHS here in the U.S., giving a product in India. And we've also spent money with the public health institutions in various countries around the world where they've done actually joint ads with us that we've paid for. Lakshman, that's, that's really interesting. And then how did you think about, from an internal perspective, embedding the purpose in the organization? I think you CEO have to truly embody the purpose of the company. But 58% of my company is millennials. And for them to really embrace it is very important. I start every communication with it. And we're dialing our decisions back to the values of the company, which we reset in February. We absolutely try and live that every single day. But it's not just me. It's my senior leadership team, how we hire, how we promote, the behaviors we have. One example of this, we made a decision as an executive team that the money we saved on travel and there were a thousand people in the company who have travel budgets. We allowed them to actually give the money away to organizations that were local, but that fit with what our purpose was. And so even through the act of actually giving it away, sharing it with their colleagues about what they've done, in fact, reinforced and further embedded the purpose deep inside the organization in a much quicker time than we thought was possible. Just pushing on that uh, a bit more, how do you see the company's purpose tying into the environment, social, and governance issues that are so much in the spotlight these days? I think people haven't been discriminatory enough between E, S, and G. Because it's not just like one blob of things. Obviously, I came from a company that was a much larger size. Take the issue of plastics. Some of the big companies in the world, they have the ability to change plastic supply chains. They literally do. They literally say, you know, we're going to process things differently, whatever. And so if there's a plastic supply chain question that needs to get in some ways rethought, we will be part of the coalition, but there's no way that we can actually shape because we're not that big enough. Now, having said that, there's certain commitments we've made. I mean, 
particularly the environmental side, that will put us at a parity to the top third, but it won't be that we'll be the you know, vanguards in that space. On social, it's very different. If I look at Durex and what we do with HIV AIDS and what we do with sexual wellness, we are absolutely going to lead. There's no question about it. And so you look at the work we're doing in South Africa, the work we're doing with HIV AIDS and the UN, what we do with Project Red and Bonner's organization, and we will make a big difference with that. If you look at what we're doing in hygiene, we're absolutely playing a role in this because in the 1900s, people essentially thought hygiene was some kind of a lesser science. But the reality is that as you get into moments of time like this, where you have a pandemic, you have these gaps, where the antivirals haven't kicked in, or frankly, there's no vaccine, the tools we have at our hand are really all around hygiene and all around hygiene becoming the foundation of health. And that's a big deal for us. Governance, you need to be absolutely top. Our board, if you look at non-executive directors, we have a majority women non-executive director board. If you count me as a, as a woman in the UK as a minority, and they would count one of our other directors as a minority, we have a majority minority board. And I'm very proud of that. And I'm very proud of the board for having made all these calls to actually make that happen. And so I think on the governance side, we will absolutely lead. But with E and S, we will choose S. Because clearly on S, we have to lead. Because if we don't, who else will? You know, I remember speaking to the CDC, and I told them what we were about. And they said, well, it's interesting. You know, our job is to protect, heal, and nurture as well. And I said, you're right. The only difference is you're a public health institution. I'm a private public health company. Lakshman, that's, that's great. And now I wonder if we can switch gears and talk a little bit about your personal transition to the CEO role. You come to Reckitt Benkiser as an outside CEO from PepsiCo. What was that like for you? Well, when you come in as an outside CEO, you don't come in because the direction of the company is what the board wants. In this case, I've been at PepsiCo for seven years. The PepsiCo experience gave me a very quick opportunity to learn how to be the CEO of a company because I ran Latin America and then Latin America, Europe, and Africa for five years before taking on a commercial role. And there were a lot of things you learn about how you lead people, how you set direction, how you deliver performance. But becoming the public company CEO here meant there are a few more muscles that you have to exercise. You have to deal with investors. I had dealt with investors, but it was in a much more curated sort of fashion. You've got governance that you've learned about how to really manage the board. And you're the final you know, person who makes the call you know, where it's warranted. So there's clearly growth. There's clearly a step up from having been a CEO is about the same size. And so the, the real thing to do here is to be humble about it, but recognize that there's lots of things you know, but there's several things you don't know. And so you have to go through a process of giving yourself some time, set an agenda. I spent a lot of time with investors. They gave me their stories. And over the course of about four months or so, we built a strategy, we built a, a plan. We got the board to align to that plan. And then we prepared for almost six weeks to announce it to, uh, to the world outside, which is what we did at the end of February. And one of the things I did as well was I had to decide who I was going to appoint into these various roles. And that, by the way, takes some time. In Europe, you have all these notice periods, and it takes time. Even though you may have recruited them six months ago, they have notice periods and all of that. So the team has changed quite fundamentally over the course of the last year. 
And Lakshman, the lockdowns came in shortly after you announced this new strategy. So how did you handle the crisis as a CEO transitioning into this new role? And how did you build relationships with your team? In all honesty, you know, from the two weeks of the roadshow, I've been in lockdown. While I recruited my CFO and I brought him on board, I have never been in the room with him. We've operated remotely. We have a new transformation lead. He will be remote for several months. Supply chain lead is operating remotely. So I think that COVID has driven a very different dynamic around not just team composition, but also how you build a team. And I'm now putting a lot of effort into that because I think my job at this point in time is I've great people. I've got to ensure they mold into a team. One of the things I learned uh, in my time at PepsiCo is I literally, you know, I, I talk to my head of HR four times a day. I speak with my CFO and my head of human resources once a week together. There's no agenda. We spend an hour. Literally, we are calibrating what are, what are we hearing, what's the holistic picture that we are forming about where the business is, where people are, where the challenges are. I found this sort of informal, unstructured time to be a way for us to begin to understand how each of us operate. And so, you know, I haven't taken them out of dinner or something like that, but what you begin to realize is that, you know, the bar goes down a bit. And I'm finding that over time, we're beginning to read each other pretty well. And what have you found to be most challenging then about leading the company remotely over the past few months? The hardest thing as a CEO is you traditionally have two things going for you. One thing is you're a pattern recognized. So you go to a market, you see what's happening in a store, some customer said something to you, some employee said something to you in a round table, and you saw something in the newspaper while you were there. You put all that together and say, you know what, I think that's an issue or an opportunity. In a very similar way, when you judge and someone puts a proposal in front of you, particularly for a capital request or some of that, you actually do make a judgment. The judgment is based on what you see in front of you, what the person is saying, you're connected to the patterns, and there's a little bit of a chemistry that goes into making a decision. The hardest part in operating remotely is that you actually have a smaller set of patterns to recognize. And your judgment is based on a smaller set of qualitative bits of information that you have. So you are making bets. Some of those, obviously, you need to have multiple people calibrating how it's going. And so it's very important that you're getting different reads. Lech, when you're talking about some of the constraints around pattern recognition during this time, so how do you go about identifying and reacting to new consumer trends that are popping up? You know, we obviously do a lot of listening, social listening. We've got consumer insights capabilities. I'm watching daily sales. I'm talking to customers, you know, a large number of them, because they're giving me helpful inputs too. I'm also talking to other CEOs in ancillary industries, and they're the ones who also give you a bit of a read as to what's going on. The behavior changes you're seeing, they're not rocket science, really. With this kind of a world, the level of anxiety or hygiene is up. And I think you're seeing people behave that way. You're seeing both penetration changes as well as frequency changes. And you see that in the numbers that we get, too, with all the data that we are looking at. You also have brands that people, at the start of the pandemic, they had no idea what to do. So they went off and bought a bunch of them, and it stayed with them. And what you're seeing now is you're seeing the unloading of that. Third set of things that consumers are doing is they're nesting at home. Because they're nesting at home, they're cooking more, or they're cleaning more in the house. That's driving a lot of behavior change. 
there has been a big shift in e-commerce. You look at the seniors in China, and the fact is that they have made a move to ordering things online. And over time, as the economy gets even more tough and tougher and the furlough money goes away, you're going to see greater sensitivity on pricing. And Lakshman, maybe let's shift a little bit to talent. Are you seeing any changes in talent recruitment and retention at Rankit Benkiser? No, you know, when I started, there was so much uncertainty about where we were going. There was so much speculation in the press and people writing all kinds of things that it was actually very hard to attract people at first because people are saying, well, what am I joining? I had dinner with somebody every night, every single night, some candidate or breakfast, or there was calls, whatever. And you go to the first part, you have to sell them the vision. Once they got excited about the vision, then I interviewed them. Today, it's a bit different. They, you know, are not selling them the vision. They're interested. And when they're interested, our conversation is very much around what's the role, what's the fit. And fit's really a big deal for me and for the rest. So it's actually made it a little bit easier for me, even if it's remote. Partly because people know what the company's about. They know what it stands for. We've elevated the reason we exist. And because of that, it makes it a much easier sell. Lakshman, how about we turn a little bit to resilience? With so much uncertainty about the future, how are you planning inventory, staffing, and other elements of your business? You know, the first thing you want to do is take away the continuity risk and ensure that you're well capitalized. So, you know, we did a bond issue around uh, May. I think that was a good rate, good duration. I felt good about it, so we actually did that. So from a balance sheet standpoint, we felt generally a lot better. Planning is much more complicated because when you have demand in some ways soaring at the level in some parts and not at all in others, you've got to really manage in a very flexible manner. So flexibility and agility is really at the heart of this. So we absolutely have a plan. Right? We plan with a few point scenarios. But my real focus has been on flexibility. This month in July, we will produce 20 times the amount of sanitizer we did last year, 20 times. It's just a massive increase. And we've been very ruthless about the elimination of complexity. Some factories, there's some factories, we've taken away 80% of the complexity. 80% of the SKUs are gone. Because part of the way to deal with uncertainty is also to simplify And so our operations have simplified to the point where we have the ability to move very quickly. I've been amazed. This is a company that moves very fast. And my big deal here is really how do I ensure we get out of the way and give them the ability and the tools to be able to respond to things? Because this is a very sort of locally response in a fast-moving kind of a world. Well, that actually leads me to my next question. How do you think about managing a global supply chain these days? You know, we do have, in some categories, global supply chains. In other categories, we don't. And so the ones that we don't, it's more about how do you ensure you have the right capacity and the right flexibility in order to do this and do this right. You know, uh, part of capital allocation and the role of the CEO also is you've got to assume certain risks that you have to manage. And sometimes individual managers in the country cannot take on that kind of a risk. And you have to decide what kind of risk profile you want as a company, what kind of demand are you willing to give up if nothing really happens, and how do you essentially manage that in a way that is pretty simple for people to deal with. We have been looking a lot at possible scenarios and 
how do we ensure we have the right capacity investments, both meet the volume demand, but at the same time be able to have the flexibility to respond to demand where we need to. All the way through, multiple levels of supply chain. It isn't just what happens, you know, in a manufacturing plant, what happens in VCs, what happens, you know, with forward deployed inventory, all the way down to raw materials, down to the source. You work at multiple levels. And the level of risk in each of them is actually quite different. So we are thinking about that. Lexman, I now want to change from thinking about the business to thinking about you. Um, what about your personal resilience? You described how your working life has changed. What did you do to keep your energy up during the lockdown? You know, I was in the move, the middle of the move to the, U- to the UK. I have my 90-year-old mother here, so I'm hyper-careful about exposure. So I want to ensure that uh, there's nobody who comes in so she gets exposed. I mean, I consider it a blessing that I've got a chance to you know, have dinner with her every single day. Uh, over the last 100 days, uh, there are days that have been taxing. And I have to confess, you know, when there's a board meeting and, you know, she might just choose to come in and say, you know, there's rubbish and you've got to essentially, you know, take it out of here. Uh, I had to put it on hold and go and do this and come back. I remember I was in an investor call and she had a point of view that she was choosing to express right at that moment. And, you know, it was, uh, let's just say, an interesting uh, choice about who I was going to respond to. But the investor was kind. <laughs> Well, I'm sure I'm sure it's been a fun experience for your mom to get to see you at work. Um, has the experience of leading through the COVID crisis changed you in any way, both personally or as a CEO? You learn a lot and you get much more reflective. It's really helped me understand what's going on inside the lives of a lot of people who work for me. You know, we have this thing where we open up the camera. I do these zoom-ins with young talent. And I've told them, you know, just do it at home. And I turn it around. They sit in my living room, they think. They just sit in my living room. And, um, you know, and, and they love that. I've been to people's homes in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and, you know, Brazil, which I've never been to. And they take me around their house. And they introduce me to their family. And it's actually quite, uh, it's actually quite telling because I've learned a lot about our people. And particularly as you're going through all these, you know, massive social changes, not just in the U.S., pretty much around the world. Being connected with people and understanding what they're really going through has actually been really helpful. I've also learned to walk. London is a great city to walk. And so I, you know, the other day I did a 21-kilometer walk from here to Wimbledon back. And uh, so physically, it's, uh, you know, it's been a way for me to really enjoy this great city, learn the history of this place, and uh, see all the monuments with nobody on the road. As you think about history, uh, I want to turn towards the future as well. And think about what the post-COVID period might look like. What organizational capabilities do you think will become most important? I think we see a massive digitalization at the level we never quite had. I think the pace at which we are moving is quite remarkable. Uh, and it's worldwide. It's all happening simultaneously, not just the way we work, but also the way we sell and the way we buy and the way we operate our business. So that is a huge area of change. With consumers, what we are you know, clearly, it's, it's about how you then learn more about them. And I think the interaction with them digitally is giving us the ability to, to create capabilities that will also help us be far more responsive to what they need and how we deal with their uh, needs, both stated and unstated. That's very interesting. So has that uh, caused any major changes to your strategy as a result of the crisis? First of all, we have a growth model that's very straightforward. I'm looking a lot at penetration, what is happening in each of the households, 
what's happening with the digital consumers and the like. We clearly look at market share, which is the other element of, you know, where some other competitors are also benefiting from this. And so we're looking at new places our brand will go, countries particularly, where we're not in. And the last is new spaces. We did this uh, deal with Hilton in the U.S., along with the Mayo Clinic, which is largely around communicating a standard of care for hotels. And that gives you another sense of where things might go. We have a good sense of what the base business is doing, and it's actually doing better, which is good. Obviously, you understand that this lift gives you a bit of a benefit in some cases, but frankly, not a benefit in others. We wrote off five billion pounds on a business we had bought. That was not easy, the portfolio that we have. We're obviously well-placed in a world like this. The big question really for me is how to ensure there's no safety issue, there's no quality issue. And there are certain balls we're going to pick up and take them way down the line in time, knowing fully well that we can then come back. The choice is about those balls. And some of them are pretty hard, by the way, because, you know, you are taking money from some things. You are allowing some capability not to get built while you build something else. Some of the hard choices also around the expectations you set. So it's not that we didn't have any tough balls. We did. Yeah, Lakshman, maybe related to that, one of the questions that comes to mind is what keeps you up at night from your vantage point around those tough calls? You know, to be very frank, I sleep pretty well. But what keeps me up at night is I think that the safety of my people is a huge concern for me. And it started right from Wuhan, because if I told you the experience we had there, where the first time it had happened, we had to learn a few things. And we clearly had a lot of help from the government, local and otherwise, on how we might do this. So the thing that keeps me up at night is a call that says, this, you know, there could be a call that says something has gone wrong. It hasn't happened, by the way, but it's a thing that I worry about a lot. Lakshman, let's end on an optimistic note. Um, we've talked about some of the challenges. So now let me ask you, what excites you about the future? You know, what I'm really excited about is the power of possibility. You know, so many rules are getting thrown out. There's no way you can go online in six days. And in six days, we were online. There's no way we can work remotely for more than two months. Well, here we are. I always try and do this every single day. Is I try and find one idea somewhere in the world that has actually emerged, either in art or in culture or in science or in business, that is super positive. Because we have to be inspired by what's really happening. I and mean, we're at the cusp, I think, that when all this fall, you know, ends and we step back and look at it, we're going to see things emerge that we never thought were possible. There is a renaissance underway. It's just not visible. And I feel blessed that I have the opportunity to be in this position. That's great. I'm an optimist as well, Lakshman. And this conversation with you has only made me more so. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. And Sean, uh, now back over to you. Many thanks, Celia, and thank you also to Lakshman for sharing his insights with us today. A transcript of this conversation will soon be made available on the Inside the Strategy Room page on McKinsey.com, where you may also find links to our previous episodes. For the most current information on the implications of COVID-19 for your business, we encourage you to visit McKinsey.com slash coronavirus. There you'll find regularly updated briefing notes featuring our latest perspectives on the crisis. 
If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast episode, please email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive email alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on the Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page on mckinsey.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy and connect with us on LinkedIn by searching for McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.